So we are continuing our sermon series looking at the gift of being human, delighting in our dependence. And our topic today is one that is very important in the Bible, and it is on humility. Now, I think if you've been in church, you know that the topic of humility is important. In the New Testament, the only character trait that is mentioned more often um, of higher importance than humility is love. And Jerry Bridges and others argue that it is these two character traits on which the foundation of our entire Christian life is to be built. But the other thing that you may feel, even um, hearing me say the topic is humility or looking at the bulletin, is you may start to feel a sense of guilt. And, and I like the way Capic in his book that we've been using as a resource um, actually presents this chapter and this topic. He says, have we misunderstood humility? And I know for me, I'm like, absolutely. Um, I've misunderstood it and mistaught it in a lot of ways. And what I mean is, is often I think we come at the topic of humility from the negative. You should be humble. How dare you be prideful? You're a sinner. How can you be propped up and, and have an opinion of yourself that's higher than it should be? And those things are factually true. If we know ourselves to be sinners in any capacity, then that should automatically lead to a humble and broken posture that recognizes our need of grace. But, but I really want us today to think um, about the topic of humility as an invitation and as a gift. Um, not coming from the negative of, you need to stop being so prideful. Um, if we step back and reflect on it, even if I was to preach a super guilt-inducing sermon and you left here vowing, I'm going to try my best to not be prideful, that approach, the fear-based approach that God opposes the proud, can never lead to love. Even if you try very hard and you make a commitment that I'm not going to talk about myself at all this week, your behavior is still selfish at its core. It's not actually oriented towards God and his love, and it could never set our hearts free. As John tells us in 1 John, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And so I want to try my best at the very beginning to say my whole desire and hope is that we hear the invitation to humility as one that invites our hearts to live with joy and with happiness, not a, a condemning should or ought orientation. And so I want to start by saying, and this is kind of my main point of the whole sermon, that we all long and desire to be humble. And the reason that's true is because we all long to be happy. Blaise Pascal, French philosopher, says this, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. This is the cause of some going to war, others avoiding it, but it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man. Now, that statement may not be very shocking. You're like, yeah, if I actually reflect on it, it makes sense. Um, we're not fatalistic, that we want to be happy, that we pursue happiness. But you may be scratching your head thinking, wait a minute, does, how does that necessarily connect with humility? And the point is, it is impossible to be truly happy without being humble. This is actually a scientific fact that I just recently learned. I didn't know that UC Cal Berkeley has a scientific center for the greater good. And some of the research they've put out emphasizes this point that you cannot actually experience happiness and joy if you're not humble in some form or fashion. Christine Carter, who's a sociologist at the UC Berkeley Greater Good Parents Program, said this, gratitude and happiness are so closely connected that they are almost impossible to distinguish from each other. 
Now, the director of the Greater Good Science Center, Robert Emmons, wrote a book titled Thanks, How the New Science of Gratitude Can Make You Happier. And I didn't know that there's been, you know, 30 to 40 different studies done on how gratitude um, can make you healthier because you're happier in life. And he says this, in all of its manifestations, a preoccupation with the self can cause us to forget our benefits and our benefactors or to feel that we are owed things from others and therefore have no reason to be thankful. The humble person says that life is a gift to be grateful for, not a right to be claimed. When I am grateful, I recognize that I have no claim on the gift or benefit received. It was freely bestowed out of compassion, generosity, or love. Perceive grace and you will naturally feel gratitude. Grace is earned. It is a free gift. Scientifically, it is impossible to be happy if you are not grateful. And it is impossible to be grateful if you are not in some form or fashion humble. Grace always leads to gratitude. And that's why I chose this passage from Philippians 2 where Paul explains this so clearly. To the church, he says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Notice the, the, the whole way that Paul frames this. He doesn't say, if you want God's wrath, don't be prideful. If you want to be a good citizen, if you want to be respected and well thought of, if you want to be liked by others, if you want to get a good job, if you want to experience your best life now, be humble. Do it or you're going to be punished. No, he doesn't say any of those things. He says, if you want to experience joy, blessedness, happiness, this is the key. What Paul is clearly articulating is that this is the way we were designed by our creator to live. We were created to live in awareness of our humble dependence. We weren't simply created to live in humble dependence. Every breath we take that we are not in control of testifies that we are dependent creatures. No matter how much we want to argue, I'm a self-made person. Really? Do you not have a belly button? Do you not breathe air that you have no control over? So we are created dependent creatures, and that never changes. But we were created to live with a right awareness and posture of appreciation and gratitude towards our creator and sustainer. And from that posture of humble awareness, we were to orient ourselves towards God and our neighbors. To the degree that we live this way, we experience overwhelming happiness and gratitude in every ordinary thing that we see. One of the most powerful pictures of this that has grabbed my heart recently is Ebenezer Scrooge in The Christmas Carol. And, and I know it's, you should be familiar with that story. If not, just a, a brief context. You know, Scrooge was an extremely miserable, lonely, sad um, miser of a man who only always lived focused on himself. How much money can I make? How can I maximize what I receive from every interaction regardless of how it may hurt my fellow man. And then after his former business partner, Jacob Marley, comes and visits him as a ghost and explains, you're going to be damned for all eternity if you don't change. And then he experiences visits from the ghost of Christmas, past, present, and future. 
And then he wakes up and realizes, wait a minute, it's Christmas. And he had experienced a salvation. And this is what it says. He dressed himself all in his best. And at last he got out into the streets. The people were by this time pouring forth as he had seen them with the ghost of Christmas present. And walking with his hands behind him, Scrooge regarded everyone with a delighted smile. He looked so irresistibly pleasant in a word that three or four good-humored fellows said, Good morning, sir. A Merry Christmas to you. And Scrooge often said afterward that of all the joyous sounds he ever heard, those were the happiest in his ears. He went to church. He walked in the streets. He watched people hurrying to and fro. He patted children on the head. He talked to beggars. He looked into the kitchens of houses and up to windows. And he found that everything could yield him pleasure. He had never dreamed that any walk, that anything could give him so much happiness. What was the key? He was simply humble, living in, in a right and appropriate awareness that my life is a gift. Every breath I take is a gift. And with that posture, he walked through the streets, overwhelmed with happiness and delight, enjoying every smile, every good morning, sir. It brought him happiness that he had never known before, even though he had riches arguably more than anyone in London. Does that not stir your heart? It does mine for sure. And so I, I want to start in light of that with defining what we mean by humility. And again, I think this is one of the areas where we've misunderstood humility and we typically define it as not being prideful. But that's starting with a negative. And so I like the way Capic in his book, You're Only Human, says, let's begin with a worked out description of this virtue. Christian humility is made up of three components. First, it recognizes God as creator and sustainer. Second, it delights in the gifts of others. And third, it gratefully participates in communal life. It exalts the needs of others over one's own. These dynamics appear again and again in the biblical witness. And he could go on to say these dynamics appear again and again and again and again in the heart of anyone who experiences true happiness as a human being. He goes on to say humility is a distinctly biblical virtue because it begins with the knowledge that there is a good creator Lord and we are the finite creatures that he has made to live in fellowship with him. Everything from the air we breathe to the water we drink, from our eyes to our taste buds, everything goes back to this gift of blessed existence. Even if, and this is arguably the, the main point in the chapter, I think, where he gets at rightly, have we misunderstood humility? And where I have misunderstood it and need to repent and apologize to all of you. Listen to what he says. Even if there had never been a fall into sin, humility would still have the essential character of gratitude for our dependence on God and for his faithful supply of our need. Yes, I'm sorry for the ways that I lead with you should be humble because you're a sinner. I said earlier, of course that's true. But even if the sin um, of our first parents in the garden did not occur and bring a curse upon all creation, consequently meaning we're born with sinful hearts, Adam and Eve in their state of blessed glory pre-fall were still humble. They lived with a right orientation for God as their creator and sustainer, delighting in the gifts of others and participating by exalting others' needs over their own. Now, of course, because of their first actions, we are all born with hearts bent the opposite way. As God 
tells us in Genesis 6, 5, it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intentions of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. As a result of the fall in this it says that we're actually born with hearts that are now twisted. And instead of living with humble, joyful dependence upon God, focusing on his glory and the good of others, we now are born with a focus on ourself, with, with an orientation that says it's up to me, that life is about looking out for, protecting, and focusing on myself more than anything else. This is the default mode of the human heart. As C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is the utmost evil. And it is something that every single person in their natural state is cursed with. And so I love the way Paul says, but the good news of Christmas is that in Christ, we have been set free from this prison and slavery of only always living for ourselves. He goes on in verses 3 through 8 to say, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, this is already the mind that you've been given. And then he goes on to explain the humility of our king. Who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Paul Tripp says it this way in his Advent devotional. This is what we should be celebrating, not just during the Christmas season, but every single day of our lives. This willingness of the one who was God Almighty to leave the splendor of glory, to take on the normal limits and frailty of the human body, and to endure the daily realities of what it means to live in a terribly broken world is the definition of love. Jesus' humility is our hope. He made this broken world his destination so that our destination will be a place where every form of brokenness has ended. And we, where we would live with him in complete peace and harmony that will never end. The one whom creation was made to serve came not to be served, but to serve. He didn't come for himself. He came for us. Jesus' humility carried him to the cross. Without words or actions in his own defense, he humbly became the final sacrificial lamb, dying so that we would live and a natural question to ask in light of that is, we'll live how? And Paul explains that so clearly in 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ controls us. That's simply another way of saying what he said in Philippians 2, that this is our mind in Christ. The love of Christ now controls us because we have concluded this, that Christ has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live, get this, might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, the good news of the gospel, the good news of the Christmas message is that we do not have to live in the prison of prideful self-focus that only and always leads to misery and death. Instead, we are invited into the kingdom of God where we can live in the blessed freedom and joy that comes from a humble heart. Now, if that's new news to you, I hope at least it's good news. I hope that invitation sounds appealing. 
And if you're wondering, well, how exactly do I get that heart and mind of Christ? The answer is overwhelmingly simple. You simply receive the gift. That's it. John 1, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, just so we're clear, receiving this gift is not an easy thing to do. And hopefully this will register because this is Christmas time. And if, if you get a gift this week or, you know, next Sunday morning and you open it and it's um, a bottle of mouthwash, you might be like, wait, wait a minute, right? Like technically that's a gift, but in order to receive it, I'm kind of acknowledging I've got really bad breath and this kind of humbles me, right? Even though it can benefit me. <laughs> Tim Keller in his book, Hidden Christmas says, there's never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus Christ requires us to do. Christmas means that we're so lost, so unable to save ourselves, that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself could save us. That means that you are not somebody that can pull yourself together. You can't live a good and moral life. To accept the true Christmas gift, you have to admit that you're a sinner. You need to be saved by grace. You need to give up control of your life. That is descending lower than any of us really wants to go. Yet Jesus Christ's greatness is seen in how far down he came to love us, okay? Don't miss that last statement. He's giving us this gift because he loves us, not because he's angry or mad or wants to shame us. Gosh, I've, I, again, I'm sorry. I feel like that's so often how I've, I've lived and, and interacted even in ministry of thinking if I can just pay, make people feel their sin enough, um, then they'll break and repent and look to Jesus and the spirit can use that. There, there's clearly a conviction and awareness of sin, but it's the love of Christ, that overwhelms our heart, that draws us to himself. The gospel humbles the most proud, but it exalts the most humble. The gospel declares, yes, you're more sinful than you can imagine, but you are more loved and valuable and cherished than you could ever dare to hope. We sing this and confess it in a holy night. I love these stanzas, long lay the world in sin and error pining. In other words, long lay the world in the prison of pride and self-focus till Jesus appeared and the soul felt its worth, not its condemnation. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. This is um, the invitation to our hearts, not simply at Christmas, not simply in a worship service or an Advent service or doing Advent devotions, but it is an invitation to our hearts each and every day. It's an amazing gift of God's grace. And the implications are so vast. If we don't live like orphans, but live in the joyful delight of God our Father and knowing his affection rests on us, it will change us in every way. As Capic says very clearly, it'll help us to live with a recognition and gratitude that God is our creator and sustainer. It'll help us exalt and dignify the gifts of others and participate in the lives of others by seeking to serve. Ebenezer Scrooge is not the only example of this. If you watch Elf, Buddy the Elf is a great example of this. You could say many things about Buddy the Elf in that movie, right? He's the most clueless, he's the most unaware, but without a doubt, you have to admit no matter how much of a Scrooge or Grinch you are, that he is the happiest person in that whole movie. Why? 
because he lives with the blessed freedom of self-forgetfulness. He loves to run through the turnstile door, the revolving door of the hotel, right? He, he loves to celebrate Christmas and the gifts and dress like an elf. And he loves to sing out loud, even though everybody thinks he's crazy. He, without a doubt, is the most self-forgetful person in that movie and not surprisingly has the most happiness and joy and is contagious. It affects others. Lewis says it this way, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will be, not be some sort of greasy, smormy person who's always telling you, of course, oh, I'm nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a very cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you dislike him, it will not be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility because he will not be thinking about himself at all. Last week, uh, my friend Heidi Surrey was like, Matt, I love it. Like, you need to have somebody share every single week. Now, at first, my pride was hurt. I was like, gosh, are the sermons that bad that you need somebody else to, somebody else to share? Is Heidi here? I don't even know Heidi's here. <laughs> I'm like, but I know we love when people share. And so this week, I asked my friend Kim Bernier to come up and share what it's like um, to experience the happiness and joy of being in a relationship with someone who's humble. So Kim, come on up. Hi. Um, obviously, my name is Kim Bernier. Um, I've been married to Eric for 23 years. Um, we started dating when I was 16, so I've known Eric for a very long time. Um, the sermon was a bit of a tricky situation. Um, I'll be honest, when I got Matt's phone call this week, I had to laugh a little. Um, a phone call about humility. Why would he call me? Um, then I was quick to realize, of course, he was calling to talk about Eric. So um, couldn't quite ask Eric to come talk about his own humility, so he asked me to do it. <laughs> okay, so I'm a second grade teacher. And as all good teachers do, before we read a story, we check our background knowledge and make sure we understand the vocabulary. Um, so I headed to Webster's. Um, humility is freedom from pride or arrogance, like Matt just um, talked to us about, the quality or state of being humble. And then it says, for many, the lowness in both humility and humble is something worth cultivating. Secondly, I had to think about my background knowledge and realize I, didn't re I don't really think about humility. Um, it's probably because I'm prideful. I think of myself more than I'd like to admit. I don't think about that word too often. But this sermon brought the word humility to a new light for me. Um, as Matt said in 2 Corinthians 5, um, we can live in the blessed freedom and joy that comes from a humble heart. When I heard it this way, I immediately thought of Eric. And now I'm able to associate a word to why I and others um, love to be around Eric so much. First of all, for the almost 30 years I've known him, Eric has been the same loving, carefree guy. He has a joy for life. Seriously, he has danced um, and cheered and laughed throughout his whole life. People love him for the joy and laughter that he brings to almost all situations. Eric has had a lot of occasions to be up front and center, um, high school basketball camp captain, senior squad band leader, homecoming king, young life leader, church worship leader, and currently executive director of a successful ministry outreach. But those are the things not what people know, um, who know Eric mention. If you know him, you know. Eric is the nicest man in the world. He cares about people. He looks you in the eye and he asks questions. 
He'd much rather talk about you than himself. And he's perfectly content um, driving his non-truck, a used SUV that on occasion doesn't start. Um, two years ago, Eric was named executive, executive director of, a, of Project 658. But when, pe when new people ask him, what do you do for a job? Or new friends ask him, what do you do for a job? For months, and maybe even still, Eric will say, um, I help lead a nonprofit in town. As his wife, I want to boastfully scream out, executive director, um, one responsible for lots of programs, tons of meetings, a huge budget, um, big decisions on top of leading a growing staff um, to love the underprivileged community, all in the name of Jesus. Well, yeah, he helps lead a nonprofit. Of course, his humble response thinks less of himself and more of his leadership team and the board of directors that do all those things with him. Um, also, most of you know he loves biking. However, um, 10 years ago, that was a bit of a different story. Sorry, babe. <laughs> Um, he knew nothing of riding bikes. A friend invited him to go on a large group ride. We have laughed a lot at some of those early riding stories. Um, he had no idea what he was doing. He didn't have the gear or a respectable bike. Um, he said the other riders looked at him a little funny. And of course, everyone looked at him when he forgot to unclip his shoes and he fell over clipped. Um, <laughs> and his bike on top of him. Um, I'm actually shocked he went out again for a second ride. Um, I'm, I'm actually telling you this because um, trying something new is also a part of humility and it takes a lot of courage to do things like that. But here we are, fast forward 10 years later, in the past two summers, he's been leading a fundraiser for Project 658 by biking 500 miles with a team across the Blue Ridge Parkway. They do it because they love Jesus and they love to serve the refugee community in Charlotte. Biking is obviously the focus but these guys also know how to have a good time. Um, next summer, you should ask to be added to Eric's email list because the videos are hilarious and they will be sure to bring some joy to your life. But even with the ride, Eric doesn't think of himself. He's always worried about, worried about his team. And if you've heard him talk about it, you've heard stories about our son Jacob that rides with him or Hari's crash this past summer, but you never actually hear of Eric himself. Matt asked me, what's it like being married to someone that displays such humility? Well, first of all, um, he makes my life easy. He knows how to have a good time. He's loyal and um, also realistically honest in his life, even when talking about his beloved Buckeyes. I seldom hear him boasting about anything, except on a rare occasion when he beats Jacob in ping pong. And even as that, that is more about getting a rise out of Jacob than his own pride. Secondly, um, everyone loves Eric. Am I jealous? Um, I could be. I mean, I want to have that kind of humility too. I want that kind of freedom for myself. What a great way to live. Um, sadly, I'm the one who worries too much about what I look like, what I don't have compared to someone else, um, things in our house that are missing. But thankfully, this is not about me. It's about Eric. So <laughs> um, he keeps me grounded and focused on what truly matters. Seeing Eric get up early on Sunday mornings and lead church, or lead worship with such humility and joy is because he truly loves to worship, and, it's a, and he recognizes that gift. It's never been about him. It's always been about Jesus and the church, you all. And for that, I'm beyond proud to be his wife and glad I get a front row seat. One thing I'd like to add, 
Um, this community has been extremely supportive and gracious to Eric and I. Eric would want me to say he doesn't love this attention, but as Matt has been teaching him, he's learning to just say thank you. Um, as I told Matt, as much as I don't like speaking in front of a crowd, I'm thankful um, for this opportunity to, because humble people like Eric need to hear what a blessing they are to others. So thank you for giving me this opportunity. <laughs> Eric, I know you're mad. <laughs> I have been so giddy, excited this morning. <laughs> That's why I've been cheesing on the front row. Like, because the first thing, what I technically asked him when I called you, that says, before I met Eric, um, everyone said to me, oh, I'd love for you to meet my friend Eric Bernier. He's the most humble guy I know. At least a dozen people told me that before they ever said he could be y'all's worship coordinator or you should connect with 658. And ever since I've known you, I've experienced that that is absolutely true. But I called Kim and I said, listen, I, I encourage and praise Eric for being humble a lot. Um, is that legit? Is he the same man in your home? <laughs> right now, I'm serious. It's easy to pretend and perform out here and, and your spouse is like, if you only knew. And she's like, no. Of course, I see Eric's sin because when you're married to someone, you see all of them. She said, but that's absolutely true of him. And so, yeah, you're a huge gift. I know you're mad at me, but I'm not sorry. <laughs> let me pray and then we'll come up. And I know it's a bad spot to put you in to ask you to come up and lead us, but let me pray. <laughs> Lord Jesus, we thank you um, for your humility that you humbled yourself in the fullness of time and became like us in every way, scandalizing even the angels, because your love for us was so great. And now, um, after your life, death, and resurrection, you give us the gift of your Holy Spirit, which Paul says in Romans 5 actually anchors us securely in the grace that we've received. Oh, that we could live as your children in that grace with a humble and grateful and joyful heart. We know that you desire that for us, even as Paul said, writing to the church, I want my joy to be complete. So please consider the interests of others more significant than yourselves. Help us by your spirit to do that. Help us to have overwhelming gratitude, even now as we respond in worship. We pray in Christ's name, amen.